Listener Production. Shares, Market. the S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Full Money. Welcome to Motley Full Money, the podcast that hopefully knows the price and the value of everything. I'm Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. He is Andrew Page from strawman.com. Mr. Page, how are you? Very good, sir. Always fun to chat. It How's things? He's always good. Mate, things are great, uh, as I generally say at these times of the year. Uh, hopefully they're better than I am right now, because hopefully on holiday somewhere where listeners are listening to this particular episode. This is one of our pre-records. I uh, should be somewhere, what is it, a couple of weeks in, somewhere, maybe even Uluru by now. Fingers crossed, if, nice. I've, if I've done it well. Uh, maybe King's Canyon, something like that. So yes, I, I hopefully am even better than I am now, but I'm very good now, mate. Life is good. I have nothing to complain about. It's a bit cold down here, but other than that, mate, uh, things are good. How about you? Well, that's as bad as it gets. That's that's a big victory. Yeah. Yeah, no, pretty good. Um, I know you can see me on Zoom. No one else can, but I've, I've got a beanie on. I've got a blanket over my lap. I've got a big outdoor jacket. I forgot to turn the heater on in the office this morning oh, and just waiting for things to, to warm up a bit. There is, yeah, the, those, those couple of minutes when you first turn the heater, I was like, oh, I wish I'd done this half an hour ago. It's not. Yeah, not yeah. Winter, is, winter is coming. <laughs> exactly what's here, I think. Uh, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a good thing. Hey, mate, Tom, just before we kick off, what's, what's strawman.com? Uh, we are an online private investment there club. There you go. You learn something you'll, every You'll be interested day. to learn. Yeah. Can I tell yeah. you, I've only had one listener tell me that they don't like that joke. Much to your chagrin. Mm-hmm. Despite your continued best <laughs> efforts, I think the people who listen to me are frankly about as, uh, well, questionable when it comes to sense of humor as I am. So that's okay. A birds mm-hmm. of a feather and all that. And, you know, on the internet, you can always find your own people or something. So that's what I'm going with. Does that, does that work? <laughs> okay. You do you. You do you. <laughs> You're not buying into this at all, are you? No. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Mate, um, we, so yes, look, this is a pre-recorded episode. We're recording this in very late May. The last couple of days of May. Uh, this will go to air sometime in July. So we're getting well ahead of ourselves. We're trying to, uh, to do good things. By the way, listeners, um, if you are enjoying these pre-recorded episodes, the fact we don't take a break, if we can ever avoid it, I think I've said before, I only missed one episode when I was in hospital in the entire time we've done uh, Motley Fool Money. So I'm, I'm actually pretty proud of that. We've tried to look after our listeners. Um, you know, there's no, no humility and pride or pride and humility, but you know what I mean? We're, we try and do what we can. These ones are pre-recorded, but if you do appreciate them, if you enjoy them, make sure you thank Andrew because I, uh, this is the Motley for Money podcast. Now, he comes on the, the podcast. He gets to plug strawman.com and I occasionally ask him what it is just so listeners know. Um, <laughs> but he's been very, very generous with his time to, uh, to put aside quite a chunk of time, actually, uh, in the weeks pre-me uh, leaving for holidays to get oh, these thanks, things mate. out of the I'm way. happy so, to do thank it. You, mate. Yeah, yeah, no, all good. Enjoy this. Now, mate, speaking of speaking of pre-records, last week, assuming everything goes to air properly and I haven't screwed something up, last week we talked about, of all things, accounting. How exciting is that? Hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. Um, we do have a, some, some nerdy listeners, which I'm always grateful for, as I said before, uh, who, who tell us they love these sorts of episodes. So I'm hoping we did it justice last week, talking through the lines of the profit and loss statement, the way to understand a business and give our listeners a bit of a prompt, a bit of a push to go and just have a look for themselves and see what they can see based on that conversation. We wanted to, we we promised we would, so we're going to deliver on that. We wanted to spend this week diving into the so what. Uh, It's one thing to know those numbers and that's really important. I don't don't even mean to uh, even slightly suggest it's not worth doing. It's absolutely worth it. But you do that for a specific reason. You do that so that you can work out whether a business is successful, how successful it is, and then to judge based on some of those numbers and others, what you should, whether you should buy those shares, what that, what that means for the investor, not just the business person, the business itself. Uh, we want to get a return from what we're doing. We talked a lot last week about growth. And we talked about the fact that growth is part of almost every investor's thesis to some degree or other. 
Uh, if you're assuming the business is going to be sold off, then I guess that's fine. If you are buying a business for, for just stupid cheap, you know, half the asset value, maybe you're waiting for a revaluation. But other than that, if you're any sort of long-term investor, even a value investor, I don't say even in a bad way, but you know, there, there's generally accepted growth on one hand, value on the other. You and I both know that's silly as a dichotomy, but you know, even, even the valuest of value investors are looking for some sort of future performance, maybe not even growth, but, but some sense of what the future might look like. And that's a, that's a really big one. We kind of did that last week, so we're not going to go too much into that. We will talk about it in the context of what we talk about next, but let's go to some of these valuation metrics, mate. And I'm not going to do too much of a Cook's tour through them up front because there's a lot of acronyms, a lot of rubbish. We'll try and get through them and, and cover them off. Let's start, though, mate, with the, the most basic, the big daddy of them all, the one that everyone talks about, the one you'll see on any broker's website or even Google Finance, Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your stock quotes, you will see P slash E, or price to earnings, or price earnings ratio, depending on which way you hear it described. This is kind of the fundamental one, mate, because it makes sense, right? The price is the thing you're paying. The earnings are the things you're getting. It's it's the big data, I think, with some justifications. Is it reasonable to say it's the it's both the starting point and the most widely accepted version of, of the starting, at least, of valuation? Yeah, I think it's the most common, and it's... It's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's it's good once you understand its mm. its weaknesses, I suppose. Yes. It's good as a heuristic. There's nothing mm. I don't think there exists a ratio or formula that just in, encapsulates everything. There's no grand theory of everything mm. when it comes when it comes to finance. So I I generally I you know going to say two opposing things at once here. On on one hand, the number by itself is useless. Mm. On the other hand, when you understand a bit about the business, it is a really nice benchmarking mechanism mm. just to as you say connect the the value with the price <laughs> so so to speak and and for that reason it's it's very handy yeah. we've talked about this before i've got all kinds of alarm bells ringing in my head here it's like have we said this before how long ago did no, we say this this, it's, this this is our this is our magnum opus this is our chance to to really put some some you know uh, pins in things nails on the ground whatever the appropriate metaphor is this is just to say those things so so by all means be as repetitive as you want to be because we'll move on from this by the way and so setting us up on the p is really important okay okay for sure well i, I think we we mentioned not too long ago that so it's just the price divided by the earnings mm -hmm. um usual convention is the share price divided by the earnings per share although yes. it's all the same mm -hmm. we mentioned that inverting that is actually really helpful yeah, in trying that. to think about it because other i mean it is it is a number without units mm -hmm. right you're, you're dividing dollars yes, by exactly. dollars here which cancel each other out yep, yep. and so you have you have at least 15 high is, is 25 good should i pay 50 mm. is it three that's a real that's a real bargain mm. um the, look the long-term average tends to be sort of somewhere around 15 16 17 yep. but that's again not not very helpful mm. flip it around and now have earnings on top of price and this is called the earnings yield. It's exactly mathematically equivalent. We're just looking at it from a different angle. But I find that more intuitive. Yeah, so a P of 10, 10 over 1, is an earnings yield of 10%, 1, 1 over 10. Mm -hmm. And so that's saying I'm for what I'm paying now, I'm getting a – well, we've got to be careful with that yeah. language. You're not me. <laughs> yeah. But the company is generating a 10% profit yield yes. relative to its current market yeah. price. If I was to and buy this business much outright – the, yes. I, I would I would earn an, it would be an internal return. I wouldn't necessarily get the cash out of it, but the business I bought would be earning a return that is equivalent to ten percent of the money I spent buying the business per year. Yeah, 
Yeah, this is where I've got to be careful not to run too far ahead because what the mm-hmm. company makes <laughs> and what the company pays out are two very different things yes. and for actually very, very good reason. Yes. But if it did opt to pay out every single last cent of its net profit, and mm-hmm. it could, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's that's absolutely the yield that you would get. And so then we can all of a sudden start to think about these things a little bit clearer. I don't need to tell anyone. You don't need a finance degree to know that a 10% <laughs> yield is better than a 3% yield. Exactly, exactly. Yes, we have to risk adjust that. Yes, yes. You know, yes, we, we can't use backward looking figures. Mm-hmm. We have to sort of base it on what we think the future is going to hold, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But I just think as, as a framing mechanism, flipping it around can be pretty helpful. I love that, mate. I think it's really important because, and you know, it's not, it's, it doesn't, it's not necessarily more, it's not necessarily better in any absolute theoretical sense. But mm-hmm. as with all things psychology, I talk about it a lot. I haven't talked about it for a while, actually. Um, being able to measure it against something we already understand intuitively just makes things easier. We understand interest rates. Yeah. So we get, yeah. if you earn 2% in the bank, okay, $2 out of 100, okay, I get that. Okay, well, my earnings yield is 10%. Okay, that, I can sort of equate those numbers. If I say, oh, the PE is you know, 50, that's an earnings yield 2%. Now, again, we don't get the cash, as Andrew said. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, but it's easier to do that. Mate, yep. what are the... what are the So, so it's... And, and we've talked... We talked last week about the fact that earnings can be rubbery, but then cash flow can also be super volatile. So they're not... Mm. For different reasons, they're imperfect. But let's assume that earnings reasonably represent, well, say, firstly, we shouldn't assume earnings reasonably represent the, the underlying kind of productive capacity of a company and its ability to generate returns, whether that's cash or reported earnings. You know, that, those can be fiddled. So let's, don't assume that's true. But once you've, once you've comforted yourself that the earnings are representative of the business, what are some of the pitfalls or concerns or issues you need to just think about when you're considering whether PE of eight is good or 20 is good or both are bad? What, what, what sort of things are you looking for to say, okay, I know the PE is 10. What do I do with that to work out whether the business is then worth buying or not? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. The first thing to say is there's no right or wrong. There's mm-hmm. no there's no arbiter of value that says, Scott, you can't accept less <laughs> than a six percent. It's whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. Now general theory would suggest that the higher the risk associated with the investment, the higher the yield you would want mm-hmm. to compensate um, you for taking that risk. Yep. Uh, that that that's just basic. Um, but if, if you've got a very clear and confident view on what the earnings will be and that the earnings yield or the PE is, is in fact a, a useful number, mm. it's entirely up to you. You, do, you look at it and you go, hmm, am I happy with a, what is it, an 8% return or do I want a 15% return? Mm. And the way to properly look at that is not in isolation, but to remember that you've got a smorgasbord of investment opportunities in front of you, not just on the ASX, but outside of the ASX. <laughs> there's there's a lot of places where your capital could could go to flourish or die. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, I've always I'm a huge fan of thinking um, with investments through the lens of opportunity costs, because once I make an investment, I might say 10% seems pretty good relative to the risks. I'm pretty confident of that. But if I can get a 15% return with equally low risk and with equal confidence, I'd be bad not to. doesn't say anything is wrong with the other investment. You know, 10% is perfectly decent. But rationally, you want the highest risk-adjusted return. Mm-hmm. I've got to be careful using the term risk-adjusted because yeah, there's no formula I can push through to, to give you an exact number on that. But you're, yeah. you're, I mean, I think we can all agree that an early-stage biotech hopeful is much riskier than a, <laughs> yeah, than a right. you know, top-two supermarket mm-hmm. type, type thing. So in that case, I mean, what would I accept? I mean, I look, interest rates will feed into this as well because I have a risk-free rate, mm-hmm. so-called, that's there as well. So, I mean, remember remember a point in time where I could get 8% in a savings account. Oh, yeah. I'm going to need a lot more than that to mm-hmm. buy a share, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot more than that. Um, yeah, so there's lots of 
considerations to sort of pass it through, but it'll be a personal decision at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's right. I so I a couple of things. Um, I you need to be careful of a, of the growth or otherwise of those earnings. That also matters. We talked about growth a little bit. Oh, last, I should have mentioned last yes. week, but that's important because a business, there's two businesses on a PE of ten. One's going to double its profits next year. One's going to double half its profits next year. Which one do you want to buy? Mm-hmm. That answer is really easy. All of a sudden, you're like, well, obviously, that's going to grow. Exactly. Yep. And, that, and that's kind of the point. So there are plenty of businesses on low PEs because their profits are slowly or quickly eroding. And that's a very different proposition to a business that's in steady state. So think about, you know, you talk about um, risk-adjusted returns and comparing those with, for example, cash in the bank. That's one of the other reasons to think about cash as a nice little... Um, it helps us identify the differences because you got hundred bucks in the bank. Again, short of the company country going broke, you get your hundred bucks back, and so the capital's kind of safe, and the return is all effectively guaranteed at two percent. So you get two dollars a year for the length of the term deposit or the um, excuse, government bonds, I suppose. Let's use term deposit because it's easy; people know them. Uh, that you're going to get that, and you're going to get that, and you're going to get that. Mm. In future, you have no chance of getting three dollars <laughs> unless you reinvest that at a higher rate if you're lucky enough. You also got no risk of getting a dollar. And you're also always going to get your 100 bucks back. When you invest, and this goes to your point about risk-adjusted returns, Andrew, so it's, it dovetails mm. in beautifully. The, in a year's time, you might have, the, the market might say, well, actually, yeah, the P of 10, that's actually now eight. Now, that actually means you've lost 20% of your value because the shares have fallen by that, assuming your earnings have held. So that's the first thing. So the share, the share price can move, therefore the capital value can move. But also the profits themselves can shift around because you can be in a great business that's growing nicely. You can be in a business that is temporarily unprofitable or temporarily profitable by the way um and a whole lot more besides so it's really important when you do this and that's what you mean about risk adjusted Andrew. Is you know the, the biotech hopeful on a pe of 50 yeah maybe it's going to be really really valuable or maybe it's going to go be horrible um you, you need to think through the changes in the earnings number over time it sounds obvious right but a lot of people don't. They say, oh, P of eight, that's good. P of 15, that's more expensive. Therefore, one's worse than the other. One is more valuable, one is less valuable. Uh, I would say, I'm pretty sure you would say, mate, the answer is actually, well, it depends on what the future looks like. And not just next year, but over the length of your shareholdership, which should be hopefully a very long time, um, a business that slowly, moderately grows at decent rates over very, very long periods of time will be extraordinarily successful for you, all things being equal. Um, one that doubles next year and then halves or you know stops there versus one that grows slowly but for really long periods of time uh, those are the things that matter so think about growth not just next year uh, although it's a good starting point but how long can this business continue to grow for and at what sort of rate and that gives you a sense of how much you probably should think about paying yeah yep Um, just to pick up on something you said Mm. there I, I would I would my contention is that lower PE stocks oftentimes are more risky. And the reason for that is that the mar- we like to sort of poke fun at, you know, Mr. Market and how irrational he is and, you know, goes through these periods of irrational exuberance and then crushing pessimism. But it does tend to broadly get it right sort of over time. So when you're seeing a company and you go, wow, this is fantastic. It's a PE of four. Why isn't no one buying this? It, That's right. It, it's not an automatic given, but it's something you really mm. want to explore is, is that what is 
the concern here because, yeah. as you rightly say, if the earnings drop by 90%, that <laughs> PE is going to be, well, 40 <laughs> instead of right, 4. Right, right. Exactly. And yes. On a declining business. Yep. So it is, it is something that you want to be really, really, really comfortable mm. with. And the market doesn't leave just huge, easy arbitrage, arbitrage opportunities just, just lying around. It mm. doesn't. Now, th- this is the hard part because – Sometimes it still does, and that's <laughs> we all want to buy the low PE stocks. And this is this is another conundrum, right? People want great quality businesses at bargain basement mm, prices. Mm. You usually don't get it unless there's just very very difficult market sentiment in general, in which case it's very hard to buy. Yeah. Or the company, which may otherwise be structurally sound, is going through a horrendous, just having an anus horribleus, you know, where it's just like everything's gone, like legitimately bad things. Like the the cochlear recall's always been my go-to example here. I mean, it's doesn't change the quality of the company or anything. But back in the day when that happened, that was that was a big and, and, and very real kind of blow Absolutely. to it. So you've got to factor. I mean, this is mm-hmm. I can I can hear people being a bit exasperated with this. <laughs> just like, I, Give me an answer. There's all the what's and qualifications <laughs> and what and it, it just come bring it back. I I just yeah, think yeah. with all of these metrics, there's no point in even looking at the metric. Mm. It's irrelevant really until you've got a, you have to have a firm view mm on the future of, of the business. That's not to say, let me clarify, that's not to say I think <laughs> Woolies will be earning you know, $6.82 per share in the year FY26, yeah. uh, having achieved a compound annual growth rate of 4.3% on, on the way. No, it's, it's not. I, I, I think that you wanna, you wanna be directionally correct mm-hmm. and broadly correct. You know, single digit, low single digit, upper single digit, 15% to 20 but these kinds of ranges are really, if you can get that mm. broadly mm. right over mm. a three to five year time frame, that usually tends to be a pretty good base uh, to, start, to start working with. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think that's a really good start. Mate, we'll keep moving, um, and we will trip over some of the same issues and concepts. So we'll kind of we spend a bit more time on the PE because it really does set the foundation in terms of thinking about valuation and also the the, the sort of things to include. And I just want to, I guess, I want to. I want to add to people's frustrations. I listen, Andrew, for a second, which is just to say that there, if you're if you're listening, if you're trying to invest and looking for a formula, they don't exist, right? Or at least the formulas exist, but the inputs are by definition unknowable. And the simple reality is, if they weren't, then we would all know the answers, and there'd be no returns on offer because everything would be perfect knowledge. And that's mm. just the nature of markets. It's why I go and look for companies that are undervalued. It's why Andrew does. It's why over time we get the sort of returns that we get because the market tends to undervalue growth and it tends to overvalue in my opinion stability of earnings and, and returns so what do we get paid more we get paid more and for- just very quickly and it and it overweights the short term it yes. overweights the yes. immediate great point yeah so we get paid for being long term to Andrew's point we get paid for looking for opportunities we get paid for waiting through volatility those are that that's why you get you get the returns you get in shares even broad even on etf you get better returns on an ETF because the average market is the ETF. Or if we're talking, you know, broad index ETFs here, we should be. Um, they, those returns are bigger than cash in the bank, despite the fact that extraordinarily over 100 plus years, 120 plus years, the market has delivered extraordinary returns, something like 6 plus percent after inflation over a ton of 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. You don't get that anywhere else. And, and frankly... I gotta say that's the biggest inefficiency of all in the stock market in my mind, mate. Is for all of the for all of the, ke- the the clever propeller heads and and pointy heads and people who do these things for a living, the fact you can still get those sort of returns from the market despite that history because of the things we just talked about are really important. But the trade-off is there is no there, there are formulas for sure. Discounted cash flow is the is the easiest, most obvious one. Even a PE is a formula of sorts. But the the you know the what does it mean? 
the what numbers do you put in? Those are by definition unknowable, and that's why there are returns on offer for investors who are prepared for it. So yes, we're doing a lot of it depends. We're doing a lot of, um, you know, uh, depending on one hand on the other hand, it depends on how much growth, is there going to be growth? Can you work it out? That uncertainty is exact, exactly, it's a feature, not a bug when it comes to mm. the ability to earn significantly outsized compound returns. So I get the frustration. Ram gets the frustration. We're not going to... Oh, I get it. Know. I get it. I get it at a very visceral <laughs> exactly. level. <laughs> but, but also no apologies, right? Because that's how it works. Yeah. Again, it's why we talk about being diversified. It's why we talk about sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Because you're betting against somebody else on the future of a company or a market or, or whatever. That's, that's I, precisely where it comes from. Well, and another wrinkle to it mm. as well. It doesn't matter how good your forecasts and how good your reasoning and how good your methodology you is. Mm. There is this sort of uncomfortable truth that at the end of the day, right or wrong, the market price is the market price. Mm. And the market can re remain irrational for long periods of time as well, just sort of counter my earlier point a little bit. Mm. So there is an implicit bet that not only yes. do I think this is what the company will do, but you are also having a, a, a bet there that I think the market will view that performance mm. in mm. a certain way. Yeah. Now, I think where our, uh, and the edge for the private investor comes in just having the ability to be more patient, not having mm. wait for these things to be realized within six to, or, or, or 12 months, but we still need the market to sort of come to the party at some point and say, oh yeah, turns out we were wrong. This thing is more valuable than what we thought mm. and we're therefore going to bid the price up. Because if that doesn't happen, doesn't, it, I mean, I think it's a very good assumption to rest on because to your point, there's a hundred years of history there where, like, <laughs> again, I put the challenge out. I do this regularly. Find me a company who, who's, who's compounded its earnings at any meaningful degree for any meaningful length of time who, mm. who has not seen that reflected in the share price. Because it gets to a point, I mean, you can play it through logically, right? Let's just say that that didn't happen. Well, there's a company X on the ASX made a million dollars in profit and then 1.1 and then 1.2 and just been doing this for years and years and years. Mm. And the PE just stayed at one. Right, just to give a stupid e yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Well, at a point, it's just like, I don't even need the market anymore because even if you're paying out a 50% payout ratio and giving me a dividend, my return is spectacular. Mm -hmm. Never sell. Why would I ever sell? Like the value is backstopped by the realities of the cash flows mm -hmm. at a given point in time. So just a bit of a journey there, but I just, I, I think it's, the, the only point I'm making is, yes, we are still relying on the market and the market can be stubborn and the market can be very slow, <laughs> but we are reluctant. But we can be confident that eventually value will out. That's a lovely way to finish off PE. Let's go because we talked about dividend yield in passing. We'll go back to some of these price valuation metrics in a minute, but I'm going to half detour to dividend yield for two reasons. One is it can be its own version of a valuation metric in and of itself. But two... It actually is important to, to distinguish, compare and contrast, as the, my English teacher used to say when I used to write essays, um, compare and contrast the, the, the PE, or maybe more importantly in our context, the earnings yield, remember just the upside down PE, against the dividend yield. Two yields, two percentages, so easier to compare. Now, I'll, I'll kick this off, Ram, and then you can jump in. Go. When a company uh, does its thing, it has $100 in sales, it keeps $10 in profit, and that profit is the profit that is attributable to the company. And as a shareholder, you're entitled to a proportion of that profit as your ownership stake. But it doesn't mean you necessarily get the cash from that profit. Of that $10, the company might say, well, here's the thing. Next year, we got plans to open more stores, build a new steel mill. Harking back to my steel mill references from last week, which were very, very popular and, well, 
they haven't been aired yet. That's why they're popular. They're not unpopular yet. Put it that way. Uh, what you know, you want to go and hire some more people, invest in some more research and development. You want to go and buy another business. You want to uh, spend some money to cut some costs. Whatever those things are that you want to do with that cash. You say, look, owners. Uh, and by the way, we're management talking to the owners because shareholders are owners and the managers and the board work for us. They say, look, here's the thing, guys. Um, we earn 10 bucks in profit, but I'd really, really like to keep half of that because I'd really like to do all these different programs that I've just told you about. I reckon it's going to be great for long-term value for the shareholders. What do you reckon? What do you say, guys? And the board and the owners say, yeah, that's, that's, not, that's a pretty good idea. I'll tell you what. How about you give us five bucks and you keep five bucks to go and invest in whatever those things are that you think are good for the business long-term. And so they do that. The business has earned $10. Now, I'm going to make my life really easy here, just because I like to. Let's say that $10 was a 10% earnings yield. In other words, it was a P of 10, uh, and half of that gets paid as dividends. The other half gets kept by the business. So the dividend yield is 5%. Now, that's closer, not the same, that's closer to what we consider bank interest, for example, or the sort of things we look we think about percentage returns that come into our bank account, a rental yield. Uh, that's the money you get from the business you own or the property you own or the cash you got in the bank. The dividend is the money that comes to your bank account. That's the dividend yield. So we talk about earnings yield and say, well, the shareholders get the earnings yield. You own a business with an earnings yield of a certain amount. You don't necessarily get the money. And the difference between those two is what we call retained earnings. In other words, the $5 they didn't pay out are retained earnings kept by the business and not paid out to shareholders. And the dividend is what's left over. The other $5 that goes to us is called the dividend. You divide that dividend by the same share price we used to do the PE or the earnings yield, and you get the dividend yield. What dividend am I getting compared to the price I paid for those shares? So that's hopefully a reasonably kind of starting with a P as our starting point and profit as our starting point and stepping out from that. That gives you a sense of what a dividend yield might be. And again, you can use it as an investor to say, I want some regular cash. I'd like to fund my retirement lifestyle. We've had some questions on that in the mailbag. We've talked about that. Uh, we have a service that does that. The whole idea of that is to say, here is some cash for you to fund your lifestyle while you keep that other money invested in the business that's hopefully going to grow over time and be worth more over time. Otherwise, you'd frankly take it out. Uh, but that's what the dividend yield does. That's what it manages. It's what it looks at. Last thing for me, like the PE, earnings are variable, so are dividends. There is no guarantee. If you put money in the bank at 2%, you will get your 2%. Short of Australia failing as a, as a country, you'll get your 2% come hell or high water, either from the bank or from the government, if it had to be bailed out, you'll get your money. If though, and, and more like um, at call interest, actually, uh, which can vary based on the bank's funding costs and RBA decisions, a whole lot of other things, dividends can also change because a bank, sorry, a company might all of a sudden make a loss one, you not pay any dividend. Or profits might fall a little bit because we're in an economic slump, so your dividend gets cut by 20%, or the business grows nicely and boosts its payout ratio or its earnings or both, and you get five, $6, $7 rather than the original $5. You get more money, uh, more of that money from the company because it says, well, they earned all this extra cash. I don't need any of it. Or I don't need all of it. Here's some more for you, dear shareholder. Um, thank, you for, thank you for being an owner. So those things, it's, it's variable. Don't ever take dividends to the bank. Um, not <laughs> literally metaphorically. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of that dividend yield being variable is combination of the price you pay, which obviously can be variable over time, but also the earnings and the amount of those earnings that are paid out by the company. What have I missed, yep. mate? Nothing other than um, obviously you want the higher the yield, the better. 
you know, all else being equal, exactly. I'd, I'd, I'd rather a 20% yield than a 2% <laughs> yield. But yes. it's got, yeah, you're right. It's got to be sustainable and it's more about how that dividend comes out over time. But I, it, is, it is a bad idea for a company <laughs> to pay out money where they have a very high conviction right. um, return opportunity on that. And if they have a decent business with a decent competitive advantage, they're probably able to invest that money, you know, put a dollar in and, and get a dollar thirty out. Mm. <laughs> keep it, keep the money. You know, don't cheer for dividends when those opportunities are begging. The, <laughs> the flip side and the more common side, mm. and this leads to a, a lot of danger where companies invest poorly. They keep the dollar <laughs> and they invest it and they get an 80 cent return, in which case you should have paid out the bloody dividend. Yeah, that's um, right. So, so uh, yeah. Be be. We've talked about this, I think, relatively recently too. Just beware the so-called yield uh, uh, trap that's in there. Mm -hmm. in, you know, if it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Fifteen percent dividend yield—that's great. I'll buy those shares. Why would I not buy shares on a fifteen percent dividend yield, mate? <laughs> yeah, it's probably well. It's probably not going to be fifteen percent. They're not going to. They're not going to pay the dividend out because mm -hmm. the company's in trouble, or, or just having a just having a rough patch. It yeah. might not be anything that's sort of yeah. permanent. But that that is that is exactly why. And just be careful as a shareholder not mm. to. I, I think we speak to CEOs frequently at Strawman. And the, the quest, one question that is always consistent, regardless of the business type or industry, is how they think about capital management. Mm. I think, and I've said this before too, but the, yeah. the job of senior leadership is one of culture and capital allocation. I mean, the, the nitty gritty is sort of delegated downwards there. And that's when you want really good, you know, um, lieutenants and the rest to sort of handle the sort of the operational side of things. But you're making the big calls on the money that is available to you that has been generated through the business. And if you ever have a wonderful opportunity to invest that, and nothing's sure, right? So they can make they make the best of in, have the best of intentions and be the mm. smartest of people and just things don't always go well. But that's gotta be the lens through everything is looked at. What is the the ROI as as they say? What is the return on investment potential? At a margin of safety in that, is that is that significantly better than what I think my owners, my shareholders can get by just popping it into term deposit or, you know, or, or in a, another in another company? Then if so, keep it. And and you should you should be really happy you didn't get any cash that year because it's going to come more is going to come back to the to the asset that you own exactly. and 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 then maybe they run out of investment opportunities and then they switch to dividends. I got to tell you, it's a real frustration of mine. I own shares in a few companies that have sort of hinted at oh we're going to pay a dividend in, in FY24 and FY25. It's like you guys are growth companies. You've been raising <laughs> capital. Exactly. Some of you have got exactly. debt on there. Like, yep. don't pay. Me. I mean, yep. it, it's if you pay me something that amounts to a one or two percent yield, it's not going to change anything mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. me. But as a company at large, it's going to result in a whole bunch of money flowing out, which I would rather you would just, you know, c continue to pursue these growth ambitions if they're, if they're so good. Pay down the bloody debt, you know. Mm -hmm. But they do it, I think, because investor relations people sometimes get in there and say, oh, people will love it if you pay a dividend and that'll help support the share price. And it's just, it's really dumb, dumb, dumb thinking. Yeah, it is. Um, a couple of things on that quickly for me. Uh yeah, I've had some people before on Amazon shares, we all know that, um, who've said, how can you buy out shares on Amazon? They're not paying the dividend. How can they be worth anything at all? And the answer is because they're building an earnings generating machine. And that is the really key. It's, it's like almost saying, uh, so my, my portfolio, right? I don't take, I have a separate bank account for my portfolio. And the money, when I give dividends, it goes into that bank account. And when I save for every paycheck, it goes into that bank account. And I use that to buy more shares. Now, 
my, my portfolio is currently paying me zero, right? In terms of me personally. If, if I consider my investment account a separate entity or a separate um, uh, you know, bucket, I get nothing from my investment account. So what is my investment account worth to me? Now I can measure the account itself by the cash it generates. But if I don't take anything out, then it's worth nothing to me, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course it's not. Of course, it's worth a lot more to me because it's going to generate future earnings, other forms of capital gains or dividends. And when I take those out at some point in 10, 20, 30, 40 years time, I'll be very, very happy. That is the same as those companies. This is where it really helps to think about the, I'll use the word entities, um, just means you know various buckets or, or groupings, um, legal structures sometimes. The company that earns money and instead of paying it out, leaves it there to reinvest it is exactly what I do every single day with my share portfolio. I reinvest that money and reinvest because I want to actually generate more returns at some future time for me and my family. And that's what companies do. If they're not paying the dividend, they're saying, actually, I could pay it out now. But I'm going to keep it, use that money and generate even more value for you down the track. It's exactly what you should want them, as Andrew said, to do, as long as they can do it successfully at a high rate of return. If they can't, give me the money, I'll, I'll go invest somewhere else. Thanks very much. But that's it's just a I find that a useful way to think about, you know, the cash from, from out of a company. Um, yes, if it's out of the company, it's in your hands. Plenty of companies do waste capital. So again, your point about capital allocation RAM is really value, valuable. Um, there's nothing worse than a, a, you know, a, a company's balance sheet burning a hole in the pocket of a CEO who wants to go and build an empire, right? They can always find a reason to justify the, the, the growth. I've owned some stinkers yep. of, of businesses. I own shares in Blackmores currently. A couple of years ago, they decided to be a really great idea for them to get into the manufacturing business. It was just a stupid idea. It was always a stupid idea at the time. Stupid idea mm-hmm. since. It's cost them a fortune. It was just dumb, like really dumb. Why? Because they thought they could. They had the money. They wanted to have a go at something. They literally just burnt value by trying to get clever and, and become a manufacturer. Now, it could have worked potentially in other cases. There are many, many, many more egregious examples. This one was well-meaning. It was just it was just a dumb idea, in my opinion. Why did they do it? Probably because someone got excited about it, thought it'd be a cool thing to try and do. Now, you know, this is the way this can go. Maybe maybe they get it right sometimes. Maybe they Vertical don't. integration or something oh, like that. Oh, my God, kills me. Anyway, yeah. so that's dividend yield. Mate, let's go, let's go back to the price uh, style... Um, metrics now because there's a whole lot i'm going to read them out just give our listeners a sense of them and then we'll talk about some of them so the price earnings we said was the most recent we'll we'll stick with pe rather than earnings yield because it's it's harder when we go through these other metrics other ones are price to sales price to book price to free cash flow and a whole lot of other things you might otherwise choose these are variations of the same kind of idea but rather using earnings as their basis they try to calculate and, and compare value based on other parts of a business's balance sheet or P&L, both in the show, actually one of each. Uh, one uses the P&L, one uses the balance sheet, one uses the cash flow statement, just to mess us up. And these are designed by, well, sometimes companies try and fool us, often uh, investors who are trying to find a way to think differently about these businesses. Now, we're going to talk about price to sales, mate. And I, I want to throw something out. We got a message this morning. Uh, we got tagged on, on Twitter. Um, did you get tagged on Twitter? I think you did. Uh, by, by someone. I'm just scrolling through really quickly because I should have had this already. By Donald, uh, who just says, at Sage underscore CMN, at TMF Scott P, yikes. Now, he's talking about NVIDIA. We're not going to go into NVIDIA itself, but the, the tweet he was referencing can just us, just just tell the audience before you do what Nvidia is trading at at the moment that's on the price to sales. exactly so that's what I say so he, he sent us a tweet and the tweet says Nvidia is now trading at 37 times its revenue price to sales and 202 times its earnings PE and the tweet is is a little bit acerbic let me read it because it's interesting in terms of the way we calculate it and this is 
well, I'll, we'll give away some. Well, our members, our members, our listeners know uh, what we've thought about price stars in the past. But let me just read this. Um, this. This tweet that was forwarded from Donald says, "Now's the right time to remember what Scott McNeely, CEO of Sun Microsystems, told Bloomberg just after the dot com collapse." I'm going to give this guy a million gold stars, mate, for absolute candor. He said, "Quote: Two years ago, we were selling at ten times revenue when we were at sixty-four dollars. At ten times revenues." To give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, said Scott McNeely from Sun Microsystems, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? <laughs> Love it. Isn't it brilliant? Love it. It's so, so I say good. that, which, which, which casts a meaningful pall on what we're about to talk about, which is price to sales. What I want you to do, mate, is I want you to talk about what price to sales is, but then I want, to, I want you to share with our listeners your view on why, for good reasons and for ill reasons, it became something that analysts started to talk about when it came to valuing companies. Yeah, I mean, you said it at the start. It's just a different thing to benchmark uh, the share price against. Mm. You know, I'm looking, originally we're just contrasting with earnings, but I can contrast it with sales or assets mm-hmm. or whatever I want. And it's the same general observations kind of apply. How reliable are those numbers? What does a reasonable average tend to be? What's it really sort of telling me, you know? And so they're all just different flavors of it. Mm. Price to sales is perhaps the crudest of the crude because, um, you know, the saying is, is uh, Revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, and then cash flow is king. Because if you and I are both making $100 million as businesses, it doesn't really say anything about our underlying economics. You could be at a 20% margin. I might not even be past the break-even point yet. So it's very it's very rough and very ready. So why do you use it? Well, you use it because oftentimes there's no other choice because there are no earnings. There is no free cash flow. There are no dividends. So I need to compare it with something, right? And in that regard, it can be pretty helpful. Um, well, just the, the you know the the, the a, at least a better option than than sucking your thumb entirely. You have nothing else to do, so why don't you use price to sales? Got to use price to sales, right? And I and I would actually say for these kinds of companies, it's probably better to do one of two things: is just really go back and and nut into some kind of DCF where I just sort of I look out into the future where there mm. actually are earnings. <laughs> so I sort of say, look, I do this a lot. I mean, I'm not, I shouldn't make fun of it. I have plenty of pre-profit companies, mm. but very strong, strong sales trajectories. Figure is like, oh gosh, you guys should be earning at least a hundred million dollars in a, in a few years' time. I know you're not past the break-even point yet, but you're probably going to get a ten percent margin. Mm. At least that seems to be a reasonably conservative estimate compared to what others in the in the industry do. And I can sort of all work it out that way. Mm. But but just as a, as a metric, price to sales will still give you that. I know that 50 is high, mm. right? Because of the, the, of the way that that was just outlined. Mm-hmm. And I know that two is, is much better. Mm. Um, but it, it does need to be looked, I think, through the context of what you think eventual margins will be. That's zero might okay. be, a, is it, I was going to say, zero might be a recent good example yeah. of this because yeah. they've had a wonderful spike in their share price mm-hmm. recently. 
And the sales has been always been pretty good. The growth has been is been there. But what's really changed is the new CEO is basically saying we're just going to cut a bunch of costs, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So in other words, our margins are going to be much better. It's not a very high sort of PE ratio, mm-hmm. but it starts to look a lot better. I mean, so for example, try and look this up on the fly. <laughs> Zero earned last year about let's call it nine dollars in in sales yeah. per share. Yeah. Uh, and they're, you know, they're trading at $110. So that's a pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of up there. But I mean, they made, a, they made a loss last year, but you've got to think a company in that, with that kind of economic model and that kind of economic position and the rest of it, mm. probably at scale, should be able to run at a 15, maybe even a 20% net margin, mm. right? So it's really not so much what are the earnings, but what, I mean, imagine if I got, got in charge tomorrow and I did an Elon Musk and just fired half the staff. <laughs> I mean, people, as long as the software keep, continues to work, I mean, probably not going to lose any subscriptions whatsoever. Going to get rid of all the most of the development team. I'm only going to do basic bug fixing and maintenance. I'm not doing new features. I'm not going to bother marketing. There goes the marketing budget. We're all going to work from home, and I'm going to do it on 10% of the work. This thing becomes like probably a 50% net margin business the year after I've done it. Now, I completely hobble it for the long term, and it's a terrible <laughs> right. uh, kind of thing, but at least – at least I've got something to anchor on with sales and what could be. And I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but it's, it's the least of, you know, it's the least bad option when, when there's not much else to go on. Hmm. I'm going to put a massive big button Didn't there, mate. explain that well. No, you did. I, the, the button I'm going to add is the, is the last bit, which is uh, it's better to go on if there's nothing else to go on. I, I, I would just say to people that I think that's, you're, you're right as long as you still continue to use it wisely. When you kind of go, I have no idea what profit's going to do, so let me use price to sales, it goes back to your point. And you've already made the point, though, which is what do the eventual margins look like, right? I, I, get, yeah. I get no profit going, I'll just use price to sales, and I'll just pick 10 because 10 seems okay. And guess what? Woolies is on 1.3 times sales. If Woolies goes to 10 times sales, you can pay $250 for Woolies shares and justify it by, well, it's less than 10 times sales. What's wrong with you people? It's, you know, and the answer is, of course, we know, A, it's a mature business, B, it's a very low margin business. Great business, but the reality is you don't want to pay too much in terms of a sales multiple for it. On the flip side, I will also say, I'll use the Amazon example because I did it earlier. Amazon's price sales have been extraordinary for the last 25 straight years. You know, while it's gone from $2 to 100 and something dollars, less than that, whatever, whatever the split adjusted cost was originally. Um, because it's generated that value we talked about, we talked about the PE, and this is where the growth thing matters. I despise the price to sales ratio, Ram, I gotta say, and maybe just come an old fuddy-duddy and I don't, I don't love the, the sort of growth companies you love. I, but I'm absolutely with you when it comes to looking at the... So, <laughs> go on. Kogan, drink, everybody. Go on, have a drink. Okay. So it's, uh, it's Friday afternoon. By the, now, it should be after like, 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 5 like, o'clock like. Eastern Standard Time. Knock yourselves out. Um, the I Kogan wasn't profitable for quite a few years and, and kind of barely profitable at that. And... I will. I will just give it. I'll just give a counterpoint to price to sales, mate. Very quickly. Not to not say I'm right. I could be entirely wrong, right? I have been so far. So let's let's put that up there. Um, I've never gone. Oh well, it's growing business, and it's therefore it's worth X times sales. What I've always said is, okay. Well, at some point, if the sales directory continues, it could do sales of about X at some future point. And at that point, if we can make a margin of six or eight percent, which is more than a standard retailer, but not bad for an internet retailer, then okay, that might be worth X dollars of profit. And at that price, if I'm paying this price today for that level of profitability, that seems justifiable to me. And so that's my, and everyone's different, mate. And full credit to those who've bought NVIDIA and made a squillion dollars, but um, I'm not saying it's a bad company either, by the way, I, I really have no, don't have a view on it. But I will say looking at the, um, a business and sort of looking at what, because at the end of the day, you, you, 
even if you use price to sales, you at some point, either I hope you're one of two things, either that some other idiot pays even more as a multiple of sales than you did and you make some money, or this company eventually becomes profitable and can be reasonably traditionally valued by somebody. And so one of those two things is fine, but you have to believe you can get to that point with some degree of confidence and justifiable confidence, not just made up you know, Dutch courage after a few beers. And you say, okay, well, I think that you know, Kogan is worth paying $4 for, whatever the price was, um, because in five years' time, sales could be in this rough range and margins could be in this rough range. And at that point, I'm likely to get a decent outcome. So, so I think, you know, I, I said, I, I hate price loss. Never, ever, ever, ever used it. If I ever do, feel free to tell me I've jumped the shark and I can go and do something else. Not because I'm necessarily right. It's not my way of thinking about it because the rest matters. Um, and I don't, I think the further you get away from profit, mate, the more you let yourself live in, not you personally, although feel free to uh, dox yourself if you want to. Um, you know, if, 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 I, I think people use price sales live in fantasy. It's a whole total addressable market problem as well. This could be $84 trillion market and it's only trading on 84 times sales. Therefore, it's a great buy. It's like, well, you know, maybe. You know, the, the things that have the, 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 yeah. the biggest little world in the world, biggest little word in the world, if, if this and if that and if that and if that, the fewer ifs you have, less risk you're taking with your investing. And that doesn't mean you're not going to get a return because you're paying cheap enough price. Again, Amazon's a great example. If in 1997, I'd be clever enough to actually buy the shares rather than watching it for 15 years first, I could have made an absolute truckload of money. But yeah. the ifs were in the way. I don't need, I don't disagree with anything you've said. You've, you've absolutely nailed it. So I, I should clarify things here. I don't think I ever have um, based an investment on, oh, the, P, the price yeah. to sales is this and that seems low to me. <laughs> never, never, ever have I done that. Yeah, yeah. It's one of it's one of a thousand data points that you mm -hmm. can draw on, and so if you if you had if we got on the call this morning before hitting record, you said, "Oh, Ram, look, here's this company. It's really interesting. They don't make any profit yet, but I really like it." Blah 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 blah. One of my first questions to you probably would be, "What's the price to sales?" Right. Not because I'm going to make an investment on mm -hmm. it, but instantly that information tells me a great deal about expectations in the market. If you could say to me, oh, look, they are growing like the clappers. I think they're going to pass break even soon. Compound growth is at 20, 25%, should stay that way for five years. Mm. And the price to sales is three. Now, I've got to do a lot of extra homework beyond that point. But as a, as a heuristic, as a shortcut, mm. that's interesting. That doesn't actually seem too high based on what you told me, assuming they can get to decent margins, et cetera, et cetera, and all the qualifications you put around it. If it was the exact same conversation, but then you said, oh, the price to sales is 50, yeah. it's kind of a hard right, pass right, right from right. the get-go. Now, yeah. I, I still haven't done any of that work, but what I know intuitively, rationally, mm -hmm. is that, well, even if you're right, Scott, that's going to be a very, very hard uh, uh, position to get a good return on because mm -hmm. the market, obviously, at 50 times sales is forecasting all of that. In fact, it needs to be that and more or mm -hmm. from much longer than everyone expects, generating much higher than margins than everyone thinks. So that's that's how you use these kinds of things. It's not like I've got to choose something and that's what I'm going to make my investment on. It's yeah. a nice little hack, for want of a better word, just for me to go, I need to put something in context from the get-go. Mm. And I find that's that's what I'm doing a lot with is the investing process. You start with a very general, blunt kind of questions. Mm. And then you, you, you're trying to get to that statue of David in the big block of marble, right? You're just chipping this away, you're chipping that away. Yep. And sometimes you just hit something and go, ah, out. I'm done. I'm done with this block of marble. There's no point chipping further. Mm. So I agree 100% with everything you said. But it can be useful. It can be useful as a, as a single data point mm -hmm. to frame up some context you for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that's where it's of value to my Mate, mind. 
Um, let's the thing I really quickly is most of just poo pooed price sales, and I, I I still stand by it. The other thing I would just want to mention to people, both in both in support and and just something else to watch out is and this seems, should be obvious to most people. Once you learn to think in exponential or compound terms, it's really really hard to do, but important. If I bought a business with a dollar of savings, at, a dollar of sales at fifty times sales, there's a decent chance to do okay because at some point it's going to be hundred dollars in sales and a thousand dollars in sales. You know, it's it's probably okay. If yeah, I was it's because ba- there's a base effect Correct. that's at play there because at a dollar, it's just like, it's not, Correct. I only have to earn one more dollar and I've doubled my revenue. Yes. Right? Whereas if I bought- doing, If you're a billion dollars of revenue, doubling a, doubling that is much harder. Correct. And that, and that is the key one, right? So the other thing to think about, when you, whenever you're doing, any, actually any, any, any price-based metric, um, but particularly price to sales, but price to some degree, the higher you go, the, it, it, there should be an inverse relationship, generally speaking, depending on the market size, between the size of the business and the size of the multiple. Just because, to Andrew's point about the base effect, you know, the trillion dollar business has got a double sales to grow versus the million dollar business has got a double sales to grow, doesn't mean that the million dollar business is necessarily worth investing in or a slam dunk because there's plenty of small businesses that go broke because they never quite make it for a million different reasons. So I'm not saying it's lower risk at all. Or you should pay more for those businesses. All I'm saying is as the business grows, you should be ratcheting back your expectations of future compound growth by definition. Uh, Buffett himself has said, I own Berkshire shares, everyone knows. Um, Berkshire can't get growing at, at previous historic rates. And you made this point at a different podcast, Andrew. I'm not sure if it's in the past or upcoming because we're recording out of sequence. Um, you know, if Berkshire can grow at 20% a year, eventually be bigger than the world economy. That's not going to, obviously. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. There, there is simply a law of large numbers problem here. Trees don't grow to the sky. Choose your, choose your preferred metaphor again. Um, Which is why, why, why the in- NVIDIA situation is so ri- yeah, ridiculous. Right. It's a trillion it's a, dollar company. It's almost a trillion. Oh, yep. okay. It's a trillion dollar yep. company. Yep. There you go. Yeah. It's a, oh, it's, it's 963 billion US. Yeah. Like whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, it's massive. And you think about if it's- It can't 10x easily right? from here. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Price to free cash flow. Now, we've talked a little bit about the cash flow statement last week. We don't do a lot more on that, but I would like you to give our listeners a sense of uh, what free cash flow is and why that's a different metric again than, than either sales or earnings. Really, free cash flow is the gold standard in, in the metric I think that you should use because profit is statutory profit won't always equal cash. Actually, yeah. very a case in point, just before we got on the call this morning, we're talking with um, the CEO of Pioneer Credit. Mm. It's a purchase debt ledger provider later on uh, today. Anyway, so I'm doing a little bit of prep before we, ch- we chat to the to the MD. And uh, they've got, you know, mm. a bunch of revenue in there. And the operating cash flow looks pretty good. But the profit was this huge loss. You know, what's going on here? There must be some right. one-off sort of cost or something. Well, these, this this company, the way they have to do their accounting rules says that when you, oh, I'm gonna, uh, maybe I need to back up a little bit here. What they do, Credit Corp's another example, they buy purchase debt portfolios, purchase debt ledgers. So basically a utility has all these clients who haven't paid their bill. Rather than collecting all of them themselves, they bundle them all up and they sell them to these other people who buy them for cents on the dollar with the general aim of collecting more than they, they spent for it. That's, mm. that's the business model. Mm. Very easy in concept, very hard in execution because maybe you won't get what you expect and sometimes there can be competitive tenders so you have to kind of sort of pay a lot for that. Right. But what it says to me in that instance, and I'll, I'm probably speaking too soon here because I haven't spoken to the, the CEO <laughs> yet, 
But I actually think that statutory profit number is is very sort of deceptive there right. because it includes this huge investment you've made. Presumably, you hope to collect far more than what you spent on those purchase debt ledgers last year, but it has been expensed in that mm. year. The, the mm. full expense comes now, and I will collect that on that over the next three, five, and, and seven, seven kind of years. So at first glance, like, oh, there's no way. I'm making a huge loss. It's like, well, actually- Strip out that 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 investment. Maybe it should go under investment cash flows, and I'm sure there's a reason why it doesn't. You, know, you think, oh, it's actually a, a, a profitable business. So, this is way off sort of topic here, but it just it's an example of how things can can differ. Yeah. And when it comes to the good thing about cash is cash is sort of cash. Yeah. And yes, correct. And, and and free cash flow, that, well, the formal definition of it is it's just the operating cash flow. So mm-hmm. everything I've done in, in running my business, mm-hmm. all the money I've taken in, all the money I've I've sort of paid out, mm-hmm. minus any uh, investing cash flows, right? So so um, uh, so it's the money that's free, <laughs> as the name implies. It's left over. I can yeah. pay a dividend. Free I can do whatever. Used, whatever, exactly, whatever. Yes. It's free yeah, to yeah, be yeah, used. Yeah. That's really what I've got available yeah. short of raising more money via debt or, or equity. So that's really nice. Companies with high growing, uh, uh, reliable free cash flows are wonderful because there's this actual stream of cash coming through, regardless of what the statutory sort of accounts mm. kind of say. Um, so it's really, really nice. Again, though, where it gets tricky is just sort of like, well, sometimes it can move around. It can be very volatile as companies make investments. And again, you've got to come back to, well, how good was that as an as an investment? That's that's the case with Pioneer, right? Um, they're trading on half their book value. At, oh, getting ahead of myself here with book value, but on half their book value at at, at this point in time. Mm. And and here's that here's that biggest little word again. If <laughs> they get the expected return on the on the ledgers that they've purchased recently, things are screaming buy, mm. right? Um, and be, let me be very careful here. I'm not saying it's a screaming buy. I don't own <laughs> shares. I haven't done any research. It's the if. We yes, have also correct. seen examples of Collection House, which yes, uh, you and right. I uh, made the misfortune of uh, yes. talking about at one day. And I, I had owned, some shares in that. Point. Yes, yep. Yeah, yep. yep. And they didn't collect at a rate that mm. managed to su- uh, supersede the, the costs, and the whole business model sort of came crashing down. Mm. Um, I've gotten I've gotten on segways and segways here, mate. But save me up, tie that in a bow, right. put a bow will, on that. For I me. will do that for you. I will only say, by the way, that as much as your members should absolutely tune into that uh, conversation. Uh, by the time this goes where it will be done but what will be available to give myself a plug The Good Oil with Scott Phillips the podcast other podcast that I host um, actually interviewed the CEO uh, of, of Pioneer Credit and that episode is available it was done on the 19th oh, I missed that I, I'm, I'm definitely have a, have a squeeze okay. or a listen um, Keith what John were your impressions uh, to go off bit uh, off topic it doesn't go too far off topic um, I, I what I loved have a have a listen for we don't go into book value or uh, or, or the, the value of the, the P&L what I loved is their remuneration Generation um, strategy. Oh, I was going to ask have a, about have that. A, yeah. Have a listen. We'll do because you'll you'll be fascinated by the answer. I will I will happily share it now because I won't steal your thunder. Your meeting's already done by the time this goes to air. Um, the the long term nature of the of the uh, management incentives is exactly what you would plan if you were doing it from scratch. So huge props to them. By the way, Keith John founded the company. So funnily enough, when you have a founder involved who wants to maximise long term value, they tend to set uh, set incentives yeah, appropriately. Yeah, Go on. You still own sixteen percent, I yeah, believe. It's a huge, huge deal. Hey, um, mm-hmm. let's go to price to book then, because this is the last one of our um, of our of our valuation metrics. Um, this is Joe Mager, a former colleague of ours, used to say that 
In the good times, everyone compares price to earnings. In the bad times, everyone compares price to book. And that's because <laughs> in the good times when there's lots of profits, you go, oh, look how much money we're making. This is all wonderful. And the bad times when profits maybe falter or maybe there's some concern around the market, people go back to, what does it actually own? What, what, what are the fundamental, you know, what, what am I getting when I buy this thing? Now, book value has gone a little bit skewy in the last 10, 20 years. I don't think we'll be talking about it in 15 years for most businesses, Andrew. Um, because the old days, we talked about the steel, the steel factory last time, and again, this time the steel mill. The book value is is all of the all of the value of all the things the company owns, less all the things Assets. it owes. Liabilities. Thank you. Uh, so uh, my book value is that value of my house and my car and my computer and whatever else I own, minus the mortgage, minus the car loan, minus any credit card or personal debts or anything, gambling debts and other things I might owe some people. I don't, for the record. Um, <laughs> but take all that stuff off. What, what's left over? You know, the, the, if, you, if you liquidated Scott Phillips Incorporated, the, the book value is, is the total amount of what's left after all the assets, as Andrew said. That's all my liabilities. What's left at the end is the book value. Now, in the old days, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett's mentor, going back to the 1920s-ish, used to love doing this stuff. He'd literally look around, he'd do it slightly differently, but he'd basically at that time see lots of businesses who were, you know, had book value of 100 and they were trading for, selling for 80 or 70. So, so you mean I can just pay 70 bucks, $100 worth of assets? Well, of course I would do that and do as much as I'm allowed to. And Graham did it over and over and over again, did extraordinarily well. These oh, days, just very quickly, that that was the whole corporate raiders deal in the eighties, yeah. right? Correct. You'd buy up a business, mm -hmm. and then you'd break it up into lots of little bits, yep. and you'd be able to sell it for more than what you paid in, in total. That was the spot play. On. Spot on. So, look, you don't get much of it anymore for a couple of reasons. One is the market's smarter than that now. You don't get those mispricings as often. Second, uh, book value doesn't do a very good job at all of capturing things like what we call intangible assets. So think about mastheads for newspapers, think about the value of brands, think about things like network effects or, or you know, the, the, the customer list, that kind of stuff. Those are, those are real serious value creating assets, but they're very rarely recorded on the balance sheet because accountants don't really have a good way of doing that. You can kind of do it a little bit with acquisitions through effectively a balancing item. We won't get to that today. Um, but basically, it's not as useful as it, as it used to be. It is still very useful in my mind for both insurance companies and banks because the assets are the assets of the assets. Yes, CBA is worth a little bit more than Westpac maybe if it's a slightly better business, but broadly, um, the value of its assets are the value of its assets. The same with a, a real estate investment trust, another really good example, right? Um, if you've got $100 million of, of property on the books, you're not going to pay much more than that because the property is worth uh, the property. You're not going to pay too uh, much less than that. So what's left is the book value at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Go on. But, but this butt. is why we. Well, it's not uncommon to see write downs, right? And Correct. so what? So you've also so just here's the other is another qualifier to just frustrate people even further. It's like, <laughs> well, they might say that they have a hundred million dollars worth of property. Yes. You know, when, when the value has come around or when they actually test that in the actual market, they yep. might find that, oh, no, we can only get $80 million mm -hmm. for it. So there is, there, is, there is that. I would suspect mm. that there's probably some write-downs in the, in the commercial real estate uh, so, sector. So we should say very quickly too, and this, again, the weeds very shortly and very, 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 very small weeds. Um, managers are, and boards are, are required to have those assets revalued. And generally speaking, those revaluations are relatively conservative and relatively accurate but what book value is is if the asset was to be sold in a free and fair market at arm's length and that's that's important now that, that's every that's every so if i want to sell my house i will sell it in an open market when the markets you know when people know what's going on they can look at the property all that kind of stuff 
That's different from what we call a fire sale price, which would be to Andrew's point, and we saw this during the GFC with a business called Centro Property Group. It's changed names three oh, times. Yes. I, had to, I had to go back a couple of times in my head to get back there. Um, mm. When they got into trouble, they couldn't refinance their debt and they wanted to sell the properties. And, and they were selling the equivalent of $100 million properties for $20, $30, $40 million because mm-hmm. they were desperate and there weren't many buyers. And so the f- a fire sale price is very different. So book value is not fire sale price. Book value is, you know, if I want to sell it today and I had the time to sell it at my, at my leisure to a range of buyers who all knew everything about the business, I knew everything about the business, I could just sell it, maybe put it on the market, sell it for a, you know, a, a reasonably conservative-ish, but not, not fire sale price. That's what I'd get. To Andrew's point, if it got messy, <laughs> then uh, no asset's worth what it says on the books. Yep. And, and look, at the end of the day, it's the opinion of someone or Correct. a group, a small group of people. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest anything untoward, but I mean, yeah. you see, look at it every weekend, you know, houses are listed for one price and there's sort of these price guides and they're, they're never, you know, they're mm. always mm. off <laughs> because yeah. you don't really know until you sort of test it. So, I, but I mean, I think it's an excellent thing mm. to look at. Don't get me wrong. Like it is, there is something, um, very comforting knowing that regardless of what might be happening with earnings in the short term, there are real and valuable assets here, whether mm. tangible or intangible. You know, they, they, are, they are real and I can get something for them. You can debate exactly <laughs> what it would be, but it's not a zero, right? Mm. Now, again, mm. that's not the basis of an investment, but it, does, it, it can provide some, some comfort that there is, there is something there. Because the, the, let's say that, let's say that the, the carrying values are reasonably correct. And the market just gets insanely stupid. There will come a point where you will just go, "All right, stuff it. We're closing the doors. <laughs> yeah, right. We're selling all the assets." Yes, exactly. Because because I can, and, mm-hmm. and why wouldn't I? Mm-hmm. Because I'm going to get more than what the market say, says that I'm I'm worth. So yeah. there, there will it would have to be pretty extreme, and, and <laughs> egos will maybe prevent yeah, this. That's but right. it just it becomes the only rational kind of thing to do at that point. And you should just, do it at that and, point. Yeah. You should do it because I'm. Well, I'll buy shares for a dollar each, yep. and then I'll just do this and get two dollars back. Thank you very much. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. So all of the things to tie all of this up, really. Mm. Again, it comes back to there's just different things that you can benchmark price mm. to: mm. assets, cash flows, dividends, mm. earnings. You name it. There's look at all of them, right? But just look at them all in the right context. Understand what they're telling you. Look at what similar companies are kind of doing and it's a really really useful sort of place to start but then before any trigger is pulled for buying it's just a question of then looking into your crystal ball and sort of saying how does the future look and what are these what are these things now look like in that mm. future sort of context uh, assume that you're going to be wrong because you probably are so you just sort of edge it back with a margin of safety you know and it, you just it, you, you're just on a there's no guarantees in this game, right? We always say it's probabilistic, but you are on a much firmer footing than someone who's gone, well, the PE is three and the dividend yield is 15%, so it's cheap, I'm all in, right? Like you, you, you're just so significantly ahead of, of, of that kind of person. Yep. And that's why these, why these things can, can be really, really, really valuable. But, you know, devil's in the detail, context matters. Yep, exactly. Mate, that takes us into the price numbers. It probably just works. We're running up on about an hour. I want to spend the last little bit of time talking about a different a whole different category it's not going to take another hour don't worry a whole different category mm. of analysis we've talked a lot of these have been valuation metrics the whole way through how much am i getting and what am i paying for what i'm getting and the what i'm getting thing can be sales earnings book value free cash flow um and we talk about the dividend yield you know what, what return am i getting in cash again as measured as a proportion of 
the purchase price or the current share price. The the, the group I want to quickly talk about, mate, is the return on. <laughs> In other words, return on assets, return on capital, return on equity. These aren't metrics that talk about at all, actually, about the price we're paying. It talks about the business's ability to generate returns based on the money, and those are all different metrics, so I'll say money for now, the money that's used to generate those returns. And broadly, the idea is, hey, if you want a dollar of profit from Woolworths or a dollar of profit from Strawman or a dollar of profit from The Motley Fool or a dollar of profit from Tesla, you, you how, how much money do I have to give you to get that dollar of profit back out? And again, these are very different metrics because they rely on different funding models or methodologies, but they also depend on the structure of the business. The amount of money you need to put into the new steel mill is obviously much higher than the amount of money you need to put into a new piece of software, for example, and, and around and around it goes. So let's talk about a bit about that, mate. Which of these, Which of the, we'll start with your favorite, mate. Which of these, return on equity, return on assets, return on capital, which is your favorite of those metrics and why? Well, that's, that's, it's, that's another, it depends. But I, I, <laughs> look, to, to play along return on equity, I think, is, is probably, it's, it's probably the most widely used. And I think it speaks mm. more directly to the shareholders. Mm. Like on the equity that has been put in, me and all the shareholders have put into this business, what return are we getting? Might actually be a pretty ordinary return on an asset basis right. um, or a capital basis when I factor in all the debt. And, mm -hmm. you know, but, mm -hmm. but if, if, if the return to me after that interest expense has sort of been paid is, is still better off, it, it can be... It can be super attractive. So all the usual caveats apply here. It's only as good as it's it's as the uh, expectations for certain future events um, uh, are maintained. In the in the sense that it, it could be that the the profit the profit falls in half, and all of a sudden the return on equity is going to fall in half as well. But the higher the better is is always the way to go, and consistency and stability are important. I agree. Um, let's break that up because I don't want to talk about these in turn. They are all functions of the same thing. You've already kind of talked about that in general. And I want to use the example. <laughs> Listeners will love this. Let's use the example of a investment property. And the reason I say that is because it's a really, really, it's something people get and it's yeah. really simple to illustrate. Now, way to go. the return on equity if I was to buy a house tomorrow and I was going to say, I'm going to put up 10% and borrow the other 90%, I'm effectively leveraging 10 to 1. Now, that's risky. Andrew will tell you that's risky. Um, but, or 9 to 1. Not right. in this country, it's not. You're too, you're too timid <laughs> if you're only 10 to 1. What are you doing, man? Let's assume. 20 to 1. Let's do it for now, although we'll come back to it. Let's do it for now, it doesn't hurt you. We'll come back to why, we, that, why there's a different way you need to be careful. If I was to earn a 10% return on that house, the asset of the house, worth a million dollars because I just like to be like to keep things simple. If I get a 10% return on my house over some period of time, the return on equity would be $100,000, 10% of a million. So my return on equity is 10%. My, sorry, my return on asset is 10%. Return on assets. Asset is 10%. Yeah. The return on equity, if I've only put up 100 grand and I get a 100 grand return, I've got a 100% return on equity. In other words, I put up a dollar of cash, I'm getting a dollar back for every dollar I put up. That's astonishing. Even though the asset itself only returns me 10%. Now, those are very generous numbers. Andrew will happily tell you, if I don't mention it already, he'll make the point <laughs> that you won't get those sort of returns from property. That's absolutely true. But whatever number you use- Well, you're well up, you have. Well, yeah, you have for a long period. But so not a single year. That. A return equity yeah. is normally a single year's profit divided by 
that that money that's used. So one mm. year's rent divided by the equity, one year's rent divided by the asset value, right? So it might be ten percent. Mm. But okay. yes, the, the idea the idea broadly is by using that leverage, I get a much better return on my equity than I've put up. And that's why people do it. That's why they borrow a truckload, hope the share price mm. go the price the house price goes up. Because you know if, if you buy let's let's oh, okay just very quickly, um, if I if I buy a million dollar house, ten years later it's worth one and a half million dollars. It's got fifty percent, which is fine. When I sell it and take out my half a million dollars, I've got five times my money in a in a in yeah you know, whatever I said it was five or ten years. That's a remarkable return. That's why people would do it if you believed that return was possible. Now let's try and stay away from property. Ram and it's hard. When it comes to companies, <laughs> the same thing is also true. If you look at a business like Transurban, for example. I regularly laugh that Transurban is a loan with a toll road attached rather than actually a toll road business, right? Because it's just got extraordinary amounts of debt. And that makes it extraordinarily, uh, gener- uh, you know, um, uh, it's an extraordinary return for shareholders because for every dollar of equity you put up, they borrowed an absolute truckload of debt to support it. The banks lend them the money and the, the, the corporate bond market lends them the money because what's safer cash flow wise than a toll road? Almost nothing. So you can borrow a truckload. Uh, and you get a fantastic return, not on the asset, which is the big toll road, but the equity you put in, which is almost minuscule compared to that. On the flip side, a company with no debt, super, super, super conservative, not risky at all, right? Because you know you can't go broke if you've got no debt. You know Warren Buffett said leverage is the only way a smart guy can go broke, but your return on equity is going to look terrible because you haven't borrowed any cash. And this is the crux of why these metrics need to be considered in consultation, in my view, together, because you need to say, what's if the, the ROE can look spectacular, but if it's juiced by debt, you need to know you're taking much, much more risk in a relative sense than a business without debt. Not saying it's bad, not saying you can't do it, not saying you can't get away with it. It's just you need to keep those all in mind. ROE is kind of the cool kid's favorite, right? It's the every value investor loves it. And ROE with over 30% is wonderful and blah, blah, blah. And of course it is by definition. If you can get a 30% return in a given year on $1 equity capital you've put into the business, that's great. Why wouldn't you do it? And the answer is in a good business, you absolutely would. In a bad business, have you seen the debt pile? That stuff's crazy. And somewhere in between. It's why you should always, in my view, look at those together because it helps you understand not only the absolute return on the, the equity, but also the return on the asset itself. How good is that? Or are we just pretending that it's good because we're getting using lots of debt? And then what's the risk that comes with that debt? Ram? Yep. Uh, so a few things, oh, I want to say a few things about Transurban now. Um, re- return on equity <laughs> is, uh, it, when you see a business that has a consistently high return on equity, that's mm. a really wonderful sign. It's particularly if they've done it with a prudent level of sort of leverage. Yeah. Um, the first company that came to mind for me was ResMed. Uh, they do the sleep apnea um, devices um, help people with breathing at night etc they're, they're always north of 20 percent on their return on equity they get an incredible return and they're not they're not highly leveraged here's what's interesting you said everything that you said about transurban was absolutely correct i punched it into comsec though actually the return on negative was the return on equity was negative in the last few years and even right. before that on a more consistent base it kind of hovered around five percent so I'm like, wait a sec, that's exactly at odds with what you just said. So just to fill in some blanks there for anyone who's scratching their head. I was going to go there, but thank you for uh, drinking. Yeah, just because someone might look at it as an example. Yeah. And go, I, use, I was like, oh, don't use Transurban, Phillips, you're an idiot. But go on, let, let's, <laughs> let's, let's backfill my mistake. Well, that return on equity is calculated on a statutory profit figure. Yeah. And that statutory profit figure will have very significant depreciation costs uh, in, mm, in all of that because mm. roads you know, tend to wear out sort of o- over time. They're non-cash chart. I, I imagine that their um, return on equity look through a cash flow lens is much more attractive. And that, that, that absolutely unders- underscores 
your mm. point. Mm. What's also interesting, someone once said to me, you only dig a tunnel once, right? Yeah, that thing's <laughs> yeah, going to depreciate so over 20 years or that's something so like true. that. Uh, yes, there are ongoing maintenance costs yeah. and that is reflected yeah. in depreciation to some extent. But there's, there's really interesting investment opportunities out there when mm. people straight well, – the accountants say, the auditors say you've got to depreciate or amortize these assets and you do and you thumb suck. But there's, there's a lot of cases mm. where it's like that's actually not in line with reality. We have to do it mm. to be conservative. We can't assume that this value persists forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But, but you do get these – that – that help, if ever you see these kind of disconnects, that's the kind of thing to look for here is sort of like, so the transurban shareholders are getting much better return on equity on a, mm. on a cash flow yeah, basis than, right. than that. So just, just to help square that. Yes, that was my fault for taking down that wrong, the wrong rabbit hole. Um, and I will say too, by the way, uh, federal laws were changed to allow things like transurban and Sydney airport to actually even exist in the first place as investable entities because um, governments wanted to basically use private capital to build these assets and so or buy the assets so for example in the old days you used to only be able to pay a dividend out of what they said what they called retained earnings in other words you had to have a, a statutory profit pool from which to mm -hmm. pay those dividends they actually changed those rules specifically for those companies and, and their real uh, because they wanted to create structures that people could invest in that would make statutory losses that effectively would fund this infrastructure project. So the whole, the whole thing's all, all a mess in general uh, because they can actually pay dividends even though they haven't made a profit. Again, because statutory profit is not necessarily reflected in the, the absolute results because of those depreciation amortization oh, charges. It's, it's a nightmare looking through those financial statements. It really is. It really is. It really but is. it tells so you apologies. something about it though, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, think of it like on paper, it's just the world's worst business, right? Because- yeah. I got to spend literally billions of dollars on this thing. I don't know really what the traffic flows are going to be like uh, after the fact. I mean, if this was a, a high return business uh, operation, the government wouldn't be outsourcing it. It's like, well, we'll just use taxpayer funds and get a 20% return on our investment if it was that lucrative. It's not. It's really ordinary. In fact, the only way for it to make sense from an investment lens is to, to lever up, to make sure that the returns are sort of uh, half, half decent. And it's not as it's not as reckless as it sounds because you know on the main these are very, very well they're very durable long lasting assets that have a great utility and, and are very much sort of used they just they just need to be juiced with all of that kind of stuff Sydney airports is the other classic example right um, so yeah all, all of those things are still true so see actually what I did mate this this is the thing I actually did that on purpose I mentioned transurban just to give you the opportunity to tell me I was wrong because I'm a nice bloke like that. Uh, no, I didn't really. But what I like about it actually in the end is it kind of wrapped up beautifully the last hour or so of this very podcast because it gave us the opportunity to talk about earnings and cash flows and we got to talk about return on <laughs> equity and depreciation and frankly the dividend yield that tells you more about Transurban's business than the earnings yield in this case. So it's a really lovely combination of all of the above, which obviously I did deliberately because I'm that sort of plug. I'm just, I'm good like that. So you're welcome, listeners. You're welcome, Ram. It's what I do. Mate, as, as we, did I get away with that, do you reckon? Yeah, yeah mate. Look, I, I, what Seamless you said, right, there was right. nothing wrong with what you said. I was just, there is- <laughs> No, you're right. Is, you're dead right. You know, it, there, there is just these wrinkles that are very common. They're all different kinds, but it, it, it is really frustrating. I- I still find it frustrating to this day. I found it really frustrating in the early days. It's like, well, how does this sort of all add up? And it just, it's so, mm -hmm. so, so very difficult. But mm. I mean, Transurban, as you say, what a wonderful sort of example here too, because this is probably one where I would lean 
a bit more on the price to book. Speaking of some of the choices mm. that we had, I wouldn't wouldn't put as much weight on the price to earnings ratio. I'd put a <laughs> lot of weight on the dividend yield in this because that's Correct. no matter how complicated your structure, that is a very real return and mm -hmm. reasonably reliable given given the nature <laughs> of what their revenues sort of uh, come from. You know, COVID Correct. being a, a, a very uh, interesting exception there. Um, but you know, and so you know, I, I I actually really like the business in a lot of ways. I think they've they have done spectacularly well out of the naivety and short termism of government. Um, frankly, <laughs> exactly, you know. Um, but it's also I'm I'm not a shareholder because the yield is. Um, 3.4% in a rising yeah. yield environment. I know before anyone adds in, there's expected to be some really <laughs> decent growth in dividends in the coming. And that's that's actually the right the right um, thing to look at. In fact, looking at some of the forecasts here, it's like, wow, they're, they're really going to sort of ramp up as mm -hmm. volumes continue to recover and new assets come online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, what a, wonder, what a wonderful example of, of the kinds of things you would look, like, look at in that context. It's pretty cool. Mate, um, I reckon that's given us a, a pretty good run through. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that this kind of two-part-ish episode of a look at the financial statements and a look at some valuation metrics and methodology. We've been asked a lot about those in the past. We might at some other point, mate, probably not next week, probably going to move on and do something else. But um, at some point, we might actually even maybe grab ourselves a grab bag of companies and sort of talk about relative valuation, not, not to make a, a formal recommendation or a view, but just think about how we might consider the valuation, what to use and when. I love that. A useful conversation. I love that idea because you can talk theory until you're blue in the face. Yes, it's exactly. it's sort of going through it. And when we, I can uh -huh. already, I don't even know what companies I'm going to use, but I can already tell you yep. that there will be some things that I, uh, I, there will be a bunch of things that I think, oh, this is really interesting, and look what this says. Uh, but on the other hand, there's right. also these things. <laughs> yeah, like nothing's going to fit. We'll do. In a nice little easy template, but it, I think it'll be very, very useful. The other thing I would say too is that um, I'm very, very uh, humbled to be part of the education process for our listeners. But gosh, there's this thing called the internet, and there's so much free stuff out there. Just, just whenever what was Scott saying about this and that, Google it, right? Like, no, we didn't invent any of these things. And there's just there's yeah. there's there's, there's a, you know, it's like any, any Googling any topic, you do have to sort of wade through a bit, but you'll find some really, really, really great resources out there. Mm -hmm. But just mm -hmm. always bring it back to what does this actually mean for the business and what I have what it's going to cost me to, to get involved in it and and I think it's just just the process of starting down that that pathway just be a very fulfilling journey in the fullness of time I love it Mate, that's a wonderful way to finish off thank you for spending some time going through this listeners thank you for listening Ram will you come back on Sunday yeah looking forward to it I cannot wait mate if uh, just so our listeners know if you want to ask us a question well, I want holidays but refill the mailbag for us when we get back, uh, hit us up on email at info, I-N-F-O, at fool.com.au. Follow us on Twitter. Andrew is on Twitter exclusively as a special deal with Elon Musk. Uh, <laughs> there's a whole lot of people signing up for uh, Tucker Carlson's on Twitter only these days. So is Andrew Page. Draw your own conclusion. <laughs> at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. Get me on Twitter or Insta at TMF Scott P. Uh, be warned, as I said before, you'll get travel photos right now, but I will get back to business and, uh, and policy at some point. Uh, and uh, of course, follow me on Facebook. It's uh, facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. All that's left for me to say then is fool on. Cheers. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.